Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is ju- late afternoon Pacific time on July the 19th. It's a Monday. Um, and the war between the informational war, that is at least, uh, a very nasty war between Facebook and the U.S. government. The Biden administration is now um, all over the media. Um, Biden said at the weekend that uh, platforms like Facebook, I'm not sure what other platforms are like Facebook, are quite literally killing people with COVID misinformation. Um, uh, the According to the Wall Street Journal, this very... A very explicit Biden attack on Facebook follows months of frustration inside the White House. It's frustration that was articulated in the in the election with an open letter to Facebook by the uh, Biden Harris uh, team. Uh, Facebook, of course, is firing back at Biden over what it claims is vaccine misinformation. Um, And Facebook tells Biden, according to the New York Times, that Facebook is not the reason that the vaccination goal was missed. New York Times has always been very authoritative in its coverage of, of Facebook. And so it's no surprise that two of the New York Times's leading journalists, tech journalists, Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kang, have a new book out, An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's battle for domination, and I'm thrilled that um, one of the co-authors of that book, uh, Shira Frankel, uh, An Ugly Truth, uh, is talking to me from Oakland, just over the bay. Uh, Shira, I called this a war between the Biden administration and Facebook. Am I exaggerating? Yeah, I mean... I think neither side would want to think of it as a war because they ultimately need each other. And behind the scenes, they're still talking and cooperating with one another. Um, I think it was certainly an escalation. Um, You know, Facebook saw the Biden administration comments as a way of scapegoating them. And the Biden administration thinks that Facebook is passing the buck and not being as helpful as they could be. You know, this is something that's been brewing over a number of topics, not just sort of COVID misinformation, it was specific to this weekend, but everything from, you know, election uh, conspiracy theories surrounding the elections, obviously the use of uh, former President Trump of the platform, and just broader sort of, you know, FTC concerns over Facebook's, um, you know, is is, is Facebook a monopoly and, and does Facebook need to be regulated? And so... I, I think perhaps, you know, I think of it as just growing tensions between the Biden administration and Facebook. Your book, as I said, just out, it's no doubt, I don't know if it already is a bestseller. It's bound to be an ugly truth, um, which incorporates, uh, what, over a thousand hours of interviews with Facebook insiders. So it's not at all speculative. Um, what is, uh, Shira, the ugly truth of uh, of, of Facebook, what, what summarizes the structural problems with this company and its product? 
Right. I mean, we we chose that as the um, title of the book because it comes from a memo written by a Facebook executive, Andrew Bosworth, in which he sort of says there is an ugly truth at the heart of Facebook in order to be successful, in order to expand in the way that it wants to and, and really sort of um, continue to grow its business. It has to accept that a certain amount of harm will be done to democracy, to societies and to individuals. And we thought that that sort of encapsulated so many of the ideas of, you know, Facebook ultimately put growth at the center of its business model in order to become what it was. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, as a college student, had to decide to launch before any other social media uh, network at Harvard could. And then he grew as fast, as quickly as he could in order to overcome MySpace and other early social media companies. And we've really seen that decision repeat itself as they chose to expand into the rest of the world, as they chose to repeatedly make decisions to put their company ahead of others. And when you do that as a company, when you prioritize growth, you can't prioritize other things like safety, perhaps, or being proactive and looking for things like misinformation. Um, and so, yeah, we just thought that that really encapsulated so many of the um, the things that happened along the way in the book that we cover in different chapters, the sort of timeline of, of the first Trump campaign to the second one. Why do you think, sure, the, the press has been so remiss on, on Facebook? I've been covering this story now for since uh, ever since the beginning of uh, of, of, of Facebook, uh, I've had uh, David Fe uh, David not Facebook Dave that was a Freudian error David Kirkpatrick, <laughs> the original chronicler of Facebook on the show. He's an old friend. He began as a big fan uh, when I interviewed him when this show was on TechCrunch on in 2011. Now he's much more critical. When I last interviewed him in 2019, I've had Stephen Levy on the real story behind Facebook. He's also the chronicler of Google and, and much else in Silicon Valley. Why? And, 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 I, and I don't usually like to toot my own horn here, but I've been warning about this for years. In 2012, I wrote on, face, on CNN that we must avoid a piece about Facebook's creepy cult of transparency. And uh, I wrote a similar piece about Facebook threatening to zuck up the human race. So lots of people realize this. Why, why is the tech press, and I'm not accusing you because you're finally telling the truth yourself, but why has the tech press been so slow to tell a truth which everybody knew? It's a good question. I came to tech reporting late in my career. I was a, um, I was a foreign correspondent. Uh, for the first decade of my career. I was based in the Middle East from 2005 until 2015. And when I moved to the Bay Area in 2015, to me, that seemed like a very obvious story to tell, perhaps because I had been abroad in the Middle East, I'd seen some of the harms of Facebook. Um, I'd also reported from Myanmar, I should add, in 2015. And so I'd very specifically seen the harms of Facebook there. I think that um, in speaking to reporters that had been here before me, um, one thing that came up was that, you know, there was a bit of an infatuation with Facebook in the early days of this upstart company and its young founder. And, and I think that can, that narrative can be hard to get around. And I think Facebook is also challenging to report on as a company because it is so careful about how it um how, about its messaging, about how it's seen in the public, about the types of statements made by its executives. I mean, this is a company with, you know, over 200 people that do PR for it. Um, it's always on message, always on point. They're very aggressive with reporters that don't, you know, don't adhere to their messaging. Um, you know, I, 
I was used to that. I, I as I said, I, I came from sort of covering Middle Eastern dictatorships. So I wasn't, I don't think I was put off necessarily by an aggressive PR person the way some other reporters might be. Um, I'm not, I'm not to say that other reporters, you know, I, I just think that, you know, for reporters, there were certain challenges of access perhaps and, and much easier messaging that was easier to accept that, that maybe kept, kept them from uncovering some of the things we did in this book. Shira, you talk about this ugly truth, this contradiction between business models and serving humanity, but Facebook isn't unique in that sense. I mean, Google has the same ugly truth. Amazon, of course, even though they're not based in Silicon Valley, um, even Twitter. Uh, what is so unique about the ugly truth about Facebook when compared to the other big tech companies in the hall of shame? It's the scale of Facebook, you know, Facebook is just the largest. It's connecting over its uh, three, you know, main products, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook. It connects over 3 billion people. I think that it's, the question you asked is so important, obviously, because the same problems that plague Facebook, um, plague, uh, you know, Google and Twitter, but the scale is just nowhere near. And, you know, ultimately- well, Google has an equal scale, doesn't it? I mean, it's- Well, YouTube, right? Because we're really thinking about YouTube, the social aspect of Google, because I don't know that Google's email or its search functions, but it's it's not quite the same. It's, it's you know, and Amazon has problems in terms of, obviously has been very hands-off about content moderation. I mean, just to give an example of this for people that are listening, let's take anti-vaccine misinformation, which was recently in the news, um, you know, Amazon contributes to anti-vaccine misinformation. There are authors who publish diatribes about how vaccines will cause all sorts of numbers of diseases, and they they sell their bestsellers on Amazon. And Amazon does not do anything to, you know, remove their books. It believes very much that it should be listing everything. Um, you know, the same with with Google. You can look at YouTube and find these anti-vaccine videos on YouTube. But as reporters, when we when we do these kinds of sometimes forensic analysis, where does an idea start? Um, the particular idea about the COVID vaccine, um, you know, tying it to Bill Gates and what the answer almost always comes back to Facebook, that it starts with a spread through Facebook groups, through certain influencers, through networks that are interconnected, and then spreads outwards to other places. And so we really felt that it was important to understand why Facebook was struggling with these things, because it explains a little bit more about why other companies struggle with it. Uh, one of the reasons I think why another of the reasons why Facebook is been such a darling historically of the media, the two characters at the center of the company, Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. You wrote a piece recently uh, with uh, with Cecilia Kang for the um, for the Times about their strange and strained relationship. Um, what have you reported in an ugly truth that we didn't already know about Zuckerberg and Sandberg? Well, you know, I think publicly, they very much always want to appear in lockstep. Reporters who call them are always told the same thing, which is, well, you know, Mark and Cheryl meet at the start and the end of every week. They begin every Monday with a meeting together and end, <coughs> end the week on Friday with a meeting together. And that, you know, that vision, that portrayal of unity is very important to them. And I think what we wanted to do with this book is show how complicated that relationship is and how it's changed over the years. Ultimately, you know, Mark Zuckerberg very much needed Sheryl Sandberg in the beginning to grow his business and to do parts of the to deal with parts of the company he didn't have much of an interest in. Um, 
early Facebook employees used to joke that Mark Zuckerberg was allergic to Washington, D.C. He hated going to it so much. You list, I was reading in the book, you, you, <laughs> you list all the stuff that Zuckerberg isn't interested in. It's basically the whole company except for tech. He's not well, interested in business. He's not interested in legal. He's not interested in HR. So what is he interested in? Coding? Yes. Um, although even now, I mean, I think he would admit he's not by far from the, being the best coder Facebook has. I think the days are long gone where Mark Zuckerberg would win a coding competition. He's a he's a products guy, which um, is very unique to Silicon Valley in that it champions product people. These these visionaries, they they like to call them visionaries at least, who can see what the next product is on the horizon and be at the forefront of it. Who are thinking first and foremost about how to get their their technological edge on any of their competitors. That's what Mark loves. That's what he wants to be focusing on. I mean, if you let him, he would spend all of his time in you know digital currencies and virtual reality and and AI and and these are the things that really motivate him. The policy and the politics and the business. I think that's something he's come to later on in life. He's seen this a necessity as as a CEO because he's a unique CEO. That's another thing we kind of point we make in this book is that. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't just have, you know, a majority of the voting shares. He has structured Facebook in a way where there's really no oversight of his power. And so if he is going to position himself in a way where there is no one that can ultimately overrule him and no one that can really well fire him, clearly, then he has to become responsible for all those other parts of the company that he'd previously ignored or had really sort of handed off to Sheryl Sandberg. Why does he look, and, and maybe this is a rather superficial point well not maybe it certainly is why does he always look so miserable can't he afford a decent haircut <laughs> um i would argue that in the photos you see of him he might look miserable because he's not a very public person i mean it's the the irony of this obviously in him being the ceo of facebook and a company that urges all of us to be very public and share everything about our lives he's, he's actually quite private and so when you're seeing him photograph that's not ironic i mean that's almost well, it, 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 it's it's one of the it's one of the other ugly truths that a guy is so private, so unskilled in social, would be the founder of the social, the dominant social network. Although you know this came out in the movie as well, didn't it? Right, and and something we explore in the beginning of our book is what drove that motivation because it wasn't that he wanted to go viral, right? Mark Zuckerberg did not want to found a social network because he was a big social media influencer who wanted to share videos of himself dancing to, I don't know, whatever was popular in the 1990s. Um, he wanted to accumulate data. He understood that data was powerful. And that, I think, was really his first and, and real um, innovative idea, which is that if he could create a social network that kept you scrolling as long as possible. And by this, by the way, I'm referring to the introduction of Newsfeed, not Facebook as a company which launched. Um, but, you know, a little over a year later when they introduced Newsfeed, they would feed you data about your friends. They would feed you little tidbits and photos. I remember the introduction of that. I was a college student at the time and it was mesmerizing. Before that, when you were on MySpace or other social media, you had to navigate around to whoever's page you wanted to see. Now you could just sort of receive this information. And what we weren't thinking about, at least I was not thinking about as a 20-year-old college student, was what information I was giving Facebook through my interactions with that data. Mark understood that. And he understood that if he could keep people scrolling for as long as possible, he would get more and more and more data from them. So yes, Mark is very private. Social media for him is a way of accumulating data and therefore power. Um, the haircut, we reference this in the book, is I think, you know, I think people have noted this, but it might be a nod to one of his heroes, Augustus Caesar, his uh, fascination with the Roman Empire, and specifically with um, Caesar Augustus has been, I think, documented by Kirkpatrick and many others that are in Levy, you know, who have both written great books about um, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. 
uh, when I asked David Kirkpatrick, who now is very critical of Zuckerberg and, and Facebook, what drove him uh, when we talked a year or two ago, his answer was one word, money. I don't think he's a. I don't think my uh, David Kirkpatrick thinks that Zuckerberg is a materialist and wants to buy homes. He's just in the business of amassing a huge fortune. It's it's a core game for him. Is that fair? I would disagree. I, um, having spoken to many people close to Mark, I think there's a nuance there, but I think it's power, not money. Mark Zuckerberg is very interested in power, and as I said before, data data is power here. Um, and he's motivated by having a place in history. I mean, I don't think he just, he, I think it's more than him just enjoying history books. I think he really wants to be remembered for something and amassing enough power and influence so that he is a note in history books in a hundred years time, I think is very important to him. I had the, uh, the, the science fiction writer, another Silicon Valley based writer, Kathy Wang on the show, Imposter Syndrome. I don't know if you've seen the book, it's a really good mm -hmm. book. Um, it's about a Russian, a female Russian agent planted into Silicon Valley. And I joked with Kathy when she was on the show that this might be our, our old friend Cheryl Zuck, uh, not Cheryl Zuckerberg, that would be another ordinary, <laughs> Cheryl Sandberg. Is Cheryl as powerful, as influential as it seems, this woman who imported the, the Google business model to Facebook? Um, and who, who makes all the trains run on time, who built the business, who who amassed the power for Mark Zuckerberg to enjoy? I mean, Sheryl Sandberg is certainly a powerful woman. I think one of the things we show in our book is she's not as powerful as she once was, and she doesn't have the influence on Mark Zuckerberg that I think some people presumed her to have. There was always this idea that she would temper him, and I think, um, as we document in one incident, you know, with, with specifically with the Democratic Party, um, Nancy Pelosi thinks that Sheryl Sandberg will help her when a when an altered video of Nancy Pelosi goes viral on Facebook. And despite Sandberg agreeing with Pelosi's staff that Facebook should have removed that video, she can't convince Mark Zuckerberg. When Mark Zuckerberg makes up his mind about something, it's it's set. And so I think one of the things we show, and which honestly surprised us as reporters when we were doing our interviews, conducting our interviews for this book, was how often Mark doesn't listen to Sheryl Sandberg. Um, you don't meet, need me to tell you, Shira, that you're a woman or that your co-author Cecilia Kang is one. Um, you don't need me to tell you either that the, as a, as a rather nasty history, another, perhaps the ugly truth of Silicon Valley is its uh, attitudes towards women. Do you think that Cheryl has sometimes been a, a convenient scapegoat as a female um, and that there may even be a glass ceiling for her within Facebook? I wonder about that myself. And, you know, we, we note in the opening of this book that we asked for interviews with Mark and Cheryl and we were not um, repeatedly and we were not given them. And I, I'd so love to know. Why would they, why would they want to be interviewed, interviewed by you? Well, I would argue, why not? Why not explain themselves? I think that, you know, at least as a reporter, I think these things have nuance that I would love to hear from them. If Mark Zuckerberg had a reason for making some of the decisions he made. Also, you know, we, I think we document a lot of things in these books that are, that are damning. Um, for me personally, the Myanmar chapter was one of the most damning chapters I wrote. You know, the fact that they had people raising the alarm again and again saying, you know, a genocide is coming. This is bad. It's happening on Facebook. Please do something. And they have a single person that speaks Burmese moderating content in a country with over 100 languages spoken. I mean, I know we like to focus on what's happening here in America or in Europe, but this is da a damning indictment. And 
wouldn't you want to, to even just own your mistakes? I mean, I would think that that a good PR approach would say like, yes, we messed that up. Here's what we've done differently. Here's what we're doing differently. Um, and in terms of Cheryl, you know, yes, there were things that were said to us in the course of this book about her distraction, um, blaming her for various things, whether it's Cambridge Analytica not getting ahead of that crisis or even our own reporting in the New York Times not, not getting ahead of that. Um, and I'll note here that people close to Cheryl Sandbrooks that she really regretted not speaking to us for our 2018 article that you know ultimately became this book. And so, yeah, I had to wonder why not correct that mistake? Why not speak to a reporter and, and own what you did wrong, but also explain maybe what had happened? Yeah, and your point about Myanmar is, of course, on, on top of the fact that the original optimism about Facebook was very much built on the Arab Spring and other democratic movements, Without wishing to be too parochial, Shira, let, let's talk specifically about your analysis of January 6th um, in the book. You you uncover some very ugly truths about the relationship between Facebook and the insurrection of January 6th. What, what, what do you tell us about Facebook's responsibility for that insurrection? You know, there's been a lot of focus on Sheryl Sandberg's comments that much of it happened on other platforms. And I think one thing we wanted to do in the last chapter was show just how deeply wrong that statement was when she gave it to Reuters just after the January 6th um, insurrection. It wasn't just that, well, these many of the rioters communicated on Facebook. They messaged one another. They took part in similar Facebook groups. I mean, in the actual indictments that we are seeing filed in courts, there's there's documented evidence of Facebook messages between them in which they plan, you know, a violent insurrection. But I think for me, more important than that was the fervor and the sentiment that led to January 16th was fermented on Facebook. The day after the election, a group starts on Facebook called Stop the Steal, and it is one of the fastest growing groups in Facebook's history. It started by two well-known political activists um, who came from, from, you know, Tea Party to Donald Trump, and then they launched this as a way of spreading just, you know, categorically false information about the elections. And they create this community of people who believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. They they share false videos and false photographs and they stir people up. They, they get them angry, which is what Facebook is good for. It's good at creating communities of like-minded people and you know at promoting very emotive content, good or bad. Um, and Facebook, I would say, if they were in this right now, they would argue, well, we took down that Stop the Steal group and we took down many others. And I think the response of any researcher who was online at that time would be, well, yes, you took down some, but you left online many others. And by leaving them online, you allowed the momentum to grow and that that real sort of anger to ferment to the point where we got to January 6th, where people were angry enough and believed a false narrative strongly enough that they were willing not just to go to Washington, D.C., but to launch an an attack on the Capitol building. Yeah, and it's not as if this was the first time this had happened. Your book also talks about the Russian influence in the, the Clinton-Trump uh, election of 2016. Again, you're not, I'm not sure how, uh, and I'm curious what you uncovered in, 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 in the book about Russian interference in the 2016 election that wasn't already out there. Um, what do you say in the book, Shira, that we didn't already know about the Russian attempt to subvert the, the 2016 presidential election on Facebook, well, uh, through Facebook? Through Facebook. Yeah. I mean, honestly, for me, the Russia chapters were among the most interesting to work on and write because I followed it so closely. And I was, <laughs> I remember having a conversation with my co-author, Cecilia Kong, to say, well, what else are we going to possibly say? And 
we found a lot more. I mean, we we get into sort of all the meetings. I think people knew that Facebook held meetings about this and that there were arguments among executives about what to say and when to say it to the public. Um, we take you through step by step the meetings that were held, the arguments that were had, the repeated sort of, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the appropriate word here, but, you know, rep executives really sort of repeatedly making decisions to not go public. And, and I think in one scene that stood out in my mind, you have Sheryl Sandberg sitting in a senator's office telling him, well, we've dealt with this. We've dealt with the Russia problem. This isn't the spring, I want to say, of 2017. And next to her is sitting Alex Stamos, their head of security. And internally, he's thinking, oh, God, like, what, what is she saying? We're still looking. We don't even know what we found yet. We've got more that we're looking for. Um, and then months later, sorry, another scene that that stirred out in my mind when I when I reported it and then wrote it was, um, you know, they they start to find the Russian ads. They finally are finding the IRA ads. And even as the security team is starting to put together this, you know, folder essentially of, of hundreds of Russian ads that get that get bought to try and influence Americans, they have a PR person sitting down the hallway telling reporters, "Well, we have no Russian ads. We have found no Russian ads on the platform." Now, I will say that that was down to to the wall that was put between the security team and the PR team. The PR person did not know that they were lying to a reporter at the time, but it still happened. And for a very long time, Facebook knew a lot more than it was saying. Sure. Let's let's spend the rest of the uh, this conversation talking about how to fix Facebook. You you suggest at the end of, of your book that Facebook isn't going away, whether we want it to go away or not. It won't. And the social network is the dominant mode of communication or a dominant mode now in the in our digital century. Um, there are two areas, I think, where some people believe that Facebook can be reformed in spite of its ugly truth. The first is through rebels within about mm. Facebook staff who simply can't stand, if not face and if not Zuckerberg and Sandberg, certainly the ugly truth at the heart of the company. Um, is there a possibility for Facebook to reform itself from within with younger, more idealistic, more responsible employees, perhaps a succession uh, in a, in a post Zuckerberg world, which may have happened in some ways at Google and at Apple and perhaps even Amazon? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the hopes of many employees there who spoke to us, uh, you started this off by saying, you know, we spoke to over 400 people, um, a thousand hours of interviews. Oh, I it was a thousand. I thought it was a thousand people. So 400, no, 400 people. It was over, it was, we spoke to over That's 400. That's a lot of listening, Shira. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would say of those 400 people, the vast majority still work at Facebook. So I think that's important to note. There was this idea that we only spoke to people who had left the company or who were disgruntled. And the fact is most of them still work there and they spoke to us because they hoped that by making some of these things public, they could change. And so very much, I think employees within the company want these things public. They want, you know, they want the average person to know what went wrong in the hopes that there'll be pressure on Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg to change things. And then within the employees will be able to raise conversations they haven't been able to raise. You know, Facebook is only as good as its engineers, and they know that that is a weakness for them, that if they cannot convince good people to come work at the company, they will ultimately lose out to other companies that have better talent. And so these engineers have real power within the company to force change and to put pressure on executives. And then, as you said, I, I think that, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg himself, perhaps reconsidering how he has structured the company. Is it good? Is it appropriate for one person to give himself that type of ultimate control in a way that that he knows he doesn't have to listen to anybody? He knows that his board is there just to give advice, really. Um, 
you have to. Is there a pretender? Is there a a younger person who Zuckerberg trusts who we might be grooming in some way to take over in the longer term? Not a pretender, but you know Chris Cox, who makes an appearance in our book. He's been often um, Mm. he's been often cited as being a person that some within Facebook see as eventually potentially taking out taking over for Mark. They're they're the same age, but they're not Um, that different, are they? Cox and Zuckerberg. No, it would very much. It's not be, like Cook and Jobs. No, he would very much be choosing someone who was molded in the same image as him, and and you know the there is this PR line that Facebook likes to give that Cox is the moral compass at the center of Facebook, and I laugh a little bit internally when I hear that because I think he's very popular, he's very warm, people people like him, but um, he was also the inventor of Newsfeed, and he was in control of Newsfeed when all those problems happened in 2015 around fake news and conspiracies floating to the top of people's newsfeeds and people being Americans really being influenced um, during the elections. You know, a lot of the issues around Newsfeed amplifying content that's emotive were his decisions. And so this idea that he's somehow this moral compass that always chooses, you know, points north um, doesn't quite ring true to me. I think he's a very true believer in Facebook. I think he's, from everything I've heard, he's a good person with, who feels very badly about the mistakes Facebook made. Um, it would be more interesting, though, to see them bring in someone from the outside. Well, I think one of the things that your your new book, An Ugly Truth, tells us is there is no moral compass in, in Facebook, and perhaps structurally there can't be one. Do you? I've had... Um... Shoshana Zuboff, the author of Surveillance Capitalism on the show. Do you buy her thesis that a company like Facebook is essentially unreformable because of its business model? It's hard, right? And and something else we repeat in the book is this idea that um, Mark Zuckerberg in the early days of Facebook used to say company over country. And that was a sentiment that employees felt at the company even a decade later. And I have to ask if, if you're putting always putting company over country and by country, I don't mean the United States, I mean, you know, democracy and maybe global society. And if your core is growth rather than what is good for people, um, I don't know how you really change that. I, 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 I wonder if you can't start to amend some of your decisions to say, well, maybe perhaps we shouldn't grow this quickly um, because we can't, we can't be responsible for what, for the ways in which we've grown. And, and, and here I'm honestly, I'm thinking about Brazil and the Philippines and India, countries that are having elections in the next year where misinformation is is rife on WhatsApp. Um, yeah, and countries which are in the thrall of of, of a way more tragic COVID, uh, COVID epidemic, certainly absolutely. Brazil and India than, than the United States. However bad it is here, it's 100 times worse in, in India and, and Brazil with even more irresponsible and dishonest politicians. Absolutely. And so I wonder, you know, and I don't have an answer to this, but if you're sitting at Facebook, do you say, is there is there a way to slow this down? And then let's say you make that decision. Do you then lose out to a different social media company, perhaps one from China, which is competing with Facebook in many of these countries? And then do you assume that China will do any better than you do? I I think, you know, we made this analogy at one point um, early on when we were writing the book and Cecilia and I were chatting with each other regularly of like, you know, there's this idea that Facebook created Frankenstein and, oh, you know, it's gone loose and whatever. And it's not that they they didn't create Frankenstein. They knew what they were creating when they created it. Um, They knew exactly the monster they were making. They just didn't predict, 
you know, they just didn't realize how big the monster was going to get and how, you know, how out of control, out of their control it was going to be. It, it Ultimately, it's a monster that functioned exactly as they wanted it to and that it, um, you know, it engages people, it keeps them online for as long as possible. And it turns out what keeps people online as long as possible is conspiracies and misinformation. Finally, Shira, there's a new sheriff or perhaps more exactly a sheriffess in town, Lena Khan, uh, who now has become, I guess, as the... FTC chair under Biden, the, the chief regulator when it comes to Facebook. Uh, Facebook are claiming she shouldn't be involved in the antitrust case against them because of previous work. How optimistic are you about Khan and the Biden administration, Tim Wong's um, attempt to, uh, to control Facebook, to regulate it, to perhaps even break it up? Well, here I'm going to borrow a line from my co-author, Cecilia Kong, because she's based in Washington and knows these be things better than I do. But she said that there, she's never seen in the 10 years that she's been based in Washington and covering tech policy this much energy around regulation. And she's never seen Democrats and Republicans united in quite the same way in calling for regulation. At the same time, they're working on laws that were written over 100 years ago, people who were you know, thinking of steel and oil industries when they were writing it. And so a lot of these laws just hugely outdated. And there's really a, a two-pronged process that needs to happen here. One is that these laws need to be updated. Congress has to you know, have a moment where they, where they realize that Facebook is neither a neutral platform or a media company. It's something else that you know, they have to define and they have to create laws around. And then separately, we need to start thinking about you know, what are the monopoly issues at play? Where are the antitrust issues at play? Well, you mentioned, uh, Shira, yeah, that uh, Zuckerberg idealizes uh, some character from Rome and that accounts for his uh, haircut. Finally, <laughs> finally, your book is a wonderful read and you're the, the new authority uh, on you and, 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 and Cecilia are the new authorities on, um, on Facebook taking over from, from Kirkpatrick. Um, uh, well, I would I would note that, you know, we really do feel indebted to the work that he and Steve Levy did yeah. on the early years of Facebook. I think it's invaluable to understand the early years to understand where they got to now. And we really wanted to be able to to show more just the most recent history of the last five years. That's why we felt this book was important. Well, but you're very generous. I'm not <laughs> sure uh, if they would be quite. No, I'm joking. They're both friends of mine. I'm sure they would be equally generous to you. But finally, finally, uh, um, Shira, Zuckerberg think you've presented Zuckerberg as someone who wants to be remembered in historical terms. At this point in July 2021, with your knowledge of Facebook, how would you speculate that Facebook will be remembered for one thing mm. in historical terms mm. by 2050, when hopefully it will have gone away or changed its name or be replaced by something probably much worse? <laughs> You know, I don't I don't think it'll ever or at least what it created, what it launched onto society will never go away. You know, I think when we step back, we'll think of it as the first moment that three point. I can't remember what the latest number is. Three point three billion people across the world were united under one platform. That's never happened before in the history of the world. I'd love I'd love for a historian to write a more global, you know, book about what happens when you unite this many people? I mean, not even the Catholic Church at the height of its rule, at the height of its authority, you know, had so many people under its leadership, under its thrall, as Facebook currently does. It is a momentous sort of thing to, to achieve. And, and when we think about that in you know, 2050 or whatever year, we'll, we'll, we'll ask ourselves, what, it, what happened when all of humanity or much of humanity united under the banner of one company, really? Well, Shira, Shira Frankel, the author of An Ugly Truth, that can be your next project, comparison of Facebook and the Catholic Church.
congratulations on a, on a wonderfully researched and written book. And I look forward to having you back on the show again to talk more about Zuckerberg, Sandberg, and the ugly truth of social media. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.